Yeah, his father was Nelson Rockefeller, and Nelson was the governor of New York for several terms, and then he was uh, also vice president under Gerald Ford. But yeah, it's the direct line to John D. Rockefeller. Uh, that's Mark's grandfather, John D. Rockefeller Jr. But Mark's a, he's just a great guy. He loves to fish. That was Mike Lawson telling us about his connection to the Rockefeller family. This story in dry fly fishing today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Wanted to let you know about a killer resource we have going over at the Wet Fly Swing blog. If you go to wetflyswing.com resources, you can check out all the books that were recommended by guests from this show. There's a nice list of them there, and I'm updating them as we go. So it be, be great to, uh, to see over there. And just a heads up that if you do click those links, those, some of those are affiliate links, and this podcast gets a commission uh, at no extra cost to you. So it's a little way to support... Um, support this podcast as well. Mike Lawson of Henry's Fork Anglers is here to share the story and break down dry fly fishing with the focus on mayflies today. Mike tells us what wet flies you should use for the green drake hatch, how to present the fly uh, on the downstream uh, method to trout, and some funny stories and background about uh, the great Gary LaFontaine. It was pretty awesome. We, we dig into Gary and the impact. He's obviously a huge person. Um, you know, and fly fishing over the years, and, and Mike knew him very well. So uh, before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. TurtleBox is a new company I've been working with this year. They build an amazing portable speaker that is louder and more rugged than anything I've ever encountered. Unlike most other portable speakers out there, the TurtleBox was specifically built with a sportsman in mind. The quality of this speaker is truly unreal. I've talked with the guys at TurtleBox, solid dudes, by the way. They love the outdoors and are all avid sportsmen. We all love to get outside and enjoy the peaceful nature of the river and woods, but who doesn't like some great music before or after an adventure? This is a product I can truly say does not disappoint. Go ahead and check the guys out at turtleboxaudio.com. So without further ado, here is Mike Lawson from henrysforkanglers.com. How's it going, Mike? Good. Good, good. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on here today. This is going to be a good uh, a good chat. We, you're you know you've been out there a long time doing some great stuff in the fly fishing space. I have I've had Hen, uh, Kelly Gallup on, and he uh, you know s- says a lot of great things about you. So I'm really glad you're on here today. Um, we're going to dig into dry fly fishing and some stuff in your background. But before we get there, can you just talk about how you first got into uh, fly fishing? Sure. Yeah, I grew up here. This is. This is my home my whole life. Uh, I live right now right on the lower Henry's Fork down near St. Anthony. But I I don't know. I can't remember when I started fly fishing. I had a father and a grandfather that both loved to fish. Now, they fished with a fly rod, but they, they didn't always use flies. They used whatever works. We even used little little lures i can remember throwing a tiny little flatfish uh using these old bamboo rods and and uh i just kind of always 
figured that's about the only way to fish, but we started out fishing wet flies. My favorite wet flies were the hair, kind of hair wing flies that originated in Montana, the pots flies, which were sandy mite and lady mite, fizzles, those type of wet flies. And uh, then graduated up to, I guess, to dry flies. I, my favorite place to fish was, was on this lower river, but when I started fishing up in the more famous part of the Henry's Fork, the Harriman Ranch, it used to be called the Railroad Ranch, it was really hard. You could catch fish with wet flies, but only in a few places because most of the water was pretty slow and you could catch just little fish, but those bigger fish were hard to catch and you'd see them rising all the time. So I just kind of went, figured out most of this stuff I figured out on my own because my dad only lived till he was 44. I think I was 21 when he died and but he never fished dry flies too much. So I kind of had to get that figured out myself. And the books, I started reading some books and right about then is when uh, Selective Trout came out with the Swisher and Richards patterns. And so that sort of solved a lot of the puzzle uh, with the dry fly fishing because they identified most of the bugs that were coming off and then it was a little easier to figure out what flies to use to match them up with. So anyway, that's kind of where I where I came from. That's cool. And yeah, selective trout that, that definitely has come up a number of times as a big influence on people. You know, over the years. Um, what were the? Did you? Those guys were out of the um, kind of the Midwest area. Is that right? Or were there any other people out there? They were both from uh, Michigan. And that's kind of where they got going. Carl Richards was a dentist, and Doug Swisher was, uh, I think he was in a, some kind of industrial business. I know that anyway. But, uh, you know, back in the, in the early 70s, it seemed like that every uh, fly fishing rider put the Henry's Fork on their radar and so we kind of had everybody and that was before we opened our shop but just from my own fishing i got to know uh well starting with joe brooks was Mm. uh he was the editor of outdoor life magazine at the time and then you, you know all kinds of famous people lee wolf and and uh uh, Dave Whitlock and especially Ernie Schwebert, he wrote a lot about the Henry's Fork. So mm-hmm. it was uh, kind of went from nobody knowing anything about it from the time I grew up to where it was uh, in about every outdoor magazine you wanted to pick up. So mm-hmm. it got got famous real quick. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's a cool thing. The Henry's Fork is definitely you're right. I mean, it's always been one of those destination spots. I mean, can you take us to the Henry's Fork and tell us, you know, why is it so, you know, why were all those people writing it about it back in the day and why, you know, why is it still such a destination? Because you're in, you're in Idaho, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's in Idaho. Well, I think a couple things. One is, uh, at least in, in this part of the world, I'd say 
West Yellowstone, Montana is sort of the epicenter of fly fishing. You look back over the years and, and all these uh, early fly shop owners and outfitters that most people know now about. Uh, Bud Lilly had a shop there and Pat Barnes, Bob Jacklin got going up there. And you look at uh, that. I actually guided for one of those shops. Uh, Jim Danskin was an outfitter. And, but anyway, the Henry's Fork's only 35 miles, the upper Henry's Fork. And I think it just was kind of natural that they would uh, start focusing on the river. So that's one thing is just its location within uh, uh, easy reach of West Yellowstone. And then the other thing I think is that once these guys were focusing on bugs, there was, there was kind of a, I don't know what you'd call it, but a, a real interest in aquatic entomology at that time. And you, you were hearing more, sometimes on the river, it seemed like you heard more Latin than you did English. <laughs> and, and I think it got a little carried away, but with that in mind, the Henry's Fork, the upper river especially, has different mayfly hatches, different species coming off all, all season long. It probably has more different mayflies and caddisflies and stuff than any river in the west at least that i've fished and so that really brought a lot of attention and then the other thing i think was uh the the this is all dealing around that uh, railroad ranch harriman park and there was a, a history there with the harriman family they owned a this ranch that was a little more than 10,000 acres had about five miles of the Henry's Fork running right through it. And it's all very flat water, dry fly, just picturesque dry fly water that you can wade almost anywhere you want. It's all about a uniform depth. And so the fish are just scattered all over, <laughs> rising. And, and then the other thing about it is they keep eating insects when they're big you know a lot of a lot of rivers uh once the fish get pretty good size you know two or three pounds they don't pay much mind to little mayflies anymore but they keep feeding on the surface and so it just is a combination of all that i think that brought all this attention yeah. to the river once once it showed up on the in the magazines, and it seemed like everybody wanted to have a crack at it. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing story. That's uh, I love that you dug into some of the history there. And there's a few things that come up to me, you know, as you're talking there, and the mayflies, you noted that, and the caddisflies. Um, you know, one of that, you know, there is the um, Gary LaFontaine, you know, and he's another person that, you know, obviously isn't around anymore. But... Um, you know, you, I, I believe you and Gary wrote a book, right, on, on the Henry's Fork. Can you talk, I want to dig a little bit into that, but maybe Gary Lafontaine, he seems like I've heard so many great things, you know, said about him, about how he was way ahead of his time and stuff. Can you describe kind of what you learned from, from Gary and, and knowing him? Oh, yeah, I'm glad you brought Gary up because uh, 
he turned out to be one of my closest friends uh, before he passed away. But uh, he started working on caddisflies. He caddisflies were much more complicated for an average uh, fishing entomologist than than mayflies and stoneflies. And Gary spent a lot of time learning about these insects and and uh, in fact when he was writing caddisflies he used our shop as one of his collection places because we're right close to the river and on the back side of the shop which was the shady side all these caddisflies after they'd come out of the river would go and rest on the back of our shop so he'd be <laughs> back there he'd stop about once a week and collect insects and and he he understood them by mostly by going underwater he he used to take not just a snorkel he'd actually take uh tanks and and scuba tanks and he'd go down and just sit on the bottom of the river and watch these caddisflies watch these emergences from underwater instead of up on the surface and that's how come he developed his uh, sparkle caddis pupa. He used, started using Antron. And, you know, Gary had a whole bunch of, if you've really gotten into some of his writing, he had some crazy wild flies that a lot of them never made any sense <laughs> to most people other than Gary. But and we used to kid him about it. But, the, but his caddis mergers were really uh, an innovative thing and and even today if you look at the all the different flies that are incorporate the use of antron yarn it, it pretty much all started from gary's work oh wow wow that's cool yeah and i i think in my own experience i remember uh, I think we called it, I, I'm not sure what we called it, but I had a little fly. We, it was like an ant, you know, basically I'm sure it came from Gary, but we used like carpet fiber. You know, we had this old carpet, like shag carpet. We used to take some fibers yeah. off. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not sure, but that worked great. It was kind of this unique thing and you could use the old carpet, but so, so yeah, Gary, I mean, he basically, the, the caddis, did he, you know, and we were talking about maybe digging into mayflies here, but I'm really interested in the caddis because I fish a lot of caddis as well. Um, so he wrote obviously the book on caddis flies, but you know, and what else did he, just as a person, what, what was he like for somebody that didn't know him? You know, you knew him pretty well. <laughs> he sounds like he was pretty, well, some crazy I, ideas. Yeah, I always called him kind of the nutty professor of fly fishing because he was uh, pretty nonconformist with, with a lot of the, all, all kinds of different things with regard to fly fishing. Uh, some of them I think made a heck of a lot of sense, like, he didn't. He was pretty careful about uh, oh, worrying about reflection and stuff and spooking trout. He he'd he'd tell people to if they bought a new expensive fly rod to sand all the the finish off from. Which <laughs> you know I I wasn't ready to do that, but that was kind of his deal. And but he was a lot of fun to be with. But he he wrote. A number of other books, and and uh, the most one interesting one is his dry fly new angles. It's called, and that's where a lot of his unique philosophies come out. But he uh, 
real quick, you asked me about this book and yeah, what, where Gary, I think another place he was ahead of his time is he, he had the concept of meeting with different people like myself or with, uh, Bob Jacklin or Craig Matthews or somebody and cover a specific river on a audio tape. And he called it the river rap series, but they didn't sell very well. And I think the reason that he was ahead of his time is because in a, in an audio tape, yeah, you just pretty much have to listen to the whole tape. You can't really pick out segments and no. all that. And if I think if he would have been just a little later when CDs came out, then he could have, yeah. uh, he would have been able then to, to really figure out how people could go to different, different parts of it and all that. So, so that didn't go very well. The river rap series was a good idea, but it just didn't go very well. So then he decided to put all these in the form of a book. And so he came out with a number of different books with these same people that he worked with on the tapes. And, and I had worked with him on the Henry's Fort. So he and I got together and he basically just asked me to take the tape and listen to it and, and then write the book from that. And, and then we put some maps and different things in it and came out with that initial book. And, and then just to take that a step further is, uh, Gary then, I think most people are aware, really had a, a tough ending to his life because he got Lou Gehrig's disease, which is really debilitating. And, and he went downhill and it's not, there's no cure for it. Hmm. And after Gary passed away, then this uh, publishing company that he was involved with, that he was part owner of it, Greycliff, then that company sold. And anyway, that it was impossible. It turned out to be impossible to get those books reprinted. And because oh, wow. I, I went through a, a lot of effort trying to get that book back out because people, at least in our shop, it was just the greatest thing to be able to have that book available for people about so they could learn what they needed to know to fish the Henry's Fork. So hmm. finally, I worked with my publisher because I had already written a pretty good size book called Spring Creeks. Uh, and the publisher was Stackpole and I, I visited with them and they finally just said, you know, your best option is just start from scratch and start over. So, so I, I did that and wrote, basically rewrote the book. Uh, and it's called fly fishing the Henry's fork. And then I was able to, by then, we had so much more available than Gary and I had at the time because I, I was able to put some really nice maps in the book that are to scale and the books uh, in color. So hmm. anyway, it's uh, Amazing. It, that's kind of where the whole thing came from. Gary had a huge influence on, on me, especially with my 
my own little work as a writer. Yeah. I mean, Mike, this story is amazing. I love, this is the podcasting. You know what I love about it is that this river rap series, I mean, what, and what year was that when he was doing those tapes? Oh boy, that's, that's going to take me back. I've, I've still got a couple of them, but, uh, uh, like that probably goes back to the early nineties, I would guess. Oh, okay. Early nineties. So, so. So early '90s, he's doing these 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 audio tapes, which essentially became and the book that you wrote with um, the Henry's Fork book that you wrote with um, Gary. What what was the name of that title? What was the title there? I think it was called uh, "Fly Fishing the Henry's Fork." Okay, so you wrote a book with him that was, and was that book based on those audio tapes, or was that a different book? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That okay. Was, that was just a summary of the audio tape. Gotcha. So you had that. And then you also have this other book with Stackpole you came out with later. Yeah. And it's a, it's fly fishing the Henry's fork. It's more of a modern version. I think it was published in 2014. 2014. Oh, cool. Yeah, no. And I love this story because, you know, I mean, literally we're talking here about fishing, right? And podcasting now has become this huge thing. You know, I mean, it's, it's growing. It's, it's a big thing. And we're talking about fishing on audio. Right. And it just shows you again, Gary LaFontaine being ahead of his time, even with podcast, even with podcasting, he was ahead of his time. Right. Oh yeah. This stuff today, I I often think of how, how Gary would dive into all the modern technology today that wasn't available to him then. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. It would be, it'd be really cool to, um, well, and that's part of the, the show here. You know, I love talking to people like yourself. You're obviously a huge name as well, and you knew Gary, and, and I'm I'm making the connection to Gary for people out there. You know, there's probably some young, youngsters listening right now that, you know, they had no idea, right? They, they, they didn't know, and I love connecting to, um, to the old history, uh, and that's cool. So, well— you know, there's obviously with Gary a ton of, uh, with with yourself and Gary, there's a ton of, you know, ways we can go with this. I, I think we'll hold the caddisfly thing off till maybe another one, but um, I'm interested. You you mentioned a while back on the, the mayflies, the unique, you know, hatches that there's so many. Is there an actual hatch or insect that's, you know, specific to the Henry's Fork that you wouldn't find, you know, a mayfly in other areas? You know, I, I don't think so. so uh, there. There's always a mayfly that you find on one river that you find somewhere yeah. else. But, but uh, it's just that the Henry's Fork kind of has all of them all yeah, in it's one got everything. place. And, and the most, by far, I think the most famous mayfly hatch on the Henry's Fork is the green drake. And the western green drake. And even though you get green drakes... Uh, I think they're a little more common on rivers in Colorado, for example, than they are in our Montana-Idaho rivers. But uh, we get a few green drakes over on the south fork of the Snake River. But it's interesting how mayflies will be kind of focused in just one one place uh, where they won't be somewhere else, like the Madison River over the hill where Kelly Gallup is, it doesn't have any a hatch of green drakes. It has, but but pale morning duns, which is I think the most common mayfly on yeah. all of our western rivers, uh, 
you have good pale morning ha- dun hatches on the Madison River and also on the Henry's Fork, but the the green drakes are pretty unique to the Henry's Fork in this area. At least that's, I think, the most famous hatch. Yeah. Yeah, that that's great. I, I love, you know, the... You mentioned the green drake. That was something I was going to bring up to you because when I think of one f- pattern or, you know, one bug, that seems like the one. Maybe you can just take us to um, talk about the green drake and take us to the Henry's Fork. When do, when is that hatch, uh, you know, talk about when that begins and when that ends and, and what we need to know about it. Yeah. Usually uh, the green drakes are, well, they'll start showing up on the lower part of the Henry's Fork. Uh down near, see, that's where I live, down below the town of Ashton. We'll start seeing green drakes about the 10th of June, usually. And uh, usually it's a few days later by the time they start getting pretty active up in the upper river, up in the Harriman Park area. And But usually by the 20th of June, the green drake hatch is going full bore. And it usually lasts about uh, a week to 10 days. It's not a a real long period, but it doesn't take too many of them coming off the water for the fish to get to eat them because they're big. And they're, you know, it's, I think by weight, uh, we never talk about that much with bugs, but uh, it's probably the biggest mayfly. We have uh, some other we have some other drakes that are a little bit longer, their body length, like a, a, we, we get a brown drake, and it's, a, it's considerably uh, bigger than the green drake, at least in, in length. But the green drake is such a meaty, muscly-looking bug that I think the, the fish really get after them. So basically you have this gigantic mayfly, which, um, you know, is, is sitting there on the water fluttering. So it's almost like it reminds me of like the salmon fly hatch, right? You got this giant bug that's just. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a little bit the same thing as, a, you know, uh, the, the, the big size of them. And they're, they're, uh, they're really about a size 10 dry fly hook, mm-hmm. uh, but they're. They're really an active mayfly. They, they, when they emerge, they generally will flutter around on the surface and before they fly off. And so they create a lot of interest from the fish. And of course, uh, the anglers that that like to fish the river love the green drake hatch because they can use big flies and and heavy tippets. You know, it's always kind of fun to be. Uh, fishing and hook a big fish and know that you got four X on instead of six X yeah. because you can really, really put the heat on on a fish. That's awesome. That's all. Awesome. Are there? And the Henry's Fork has some pretty uh, decent size uh, trout. And are we talking mostly rainbows here? It's interesting on the upper part of the Henry's Fork, and, and I'm going to kind of divide it into upper and lower because there's a set of waterfalls kind of right in the middle of the river. The river is about 80 miles long, really. But the upper 25 miles or so is divided by 
two major waterfalls. The biggest one, Upper Mesa Falls, is 113 feet high. And so, and so the upper river above Mesa Falls is a rainbow fishery. Back in the day, it was a cutthroat, a native cutthroat fishery. And then over the years, the rainbow trout just kind of ended up taking over, I guess. Uh, I, I can barely remember in my young days as a kid catching a few cutthroat in the upper river, but it's mainly a rainbows and the rainbows get pretty good size, which is kind of fun. Because uh, you know how rainbows fight, and and yet uh, the Mesa Falls is a barrier to to brown trout, and on the lower river below Mesa Falls, the brown trout have started to become the predominant trout, and that and that's an interesting note because when we started our business. Uh, there were no brown trout in the river anywhere. That was in 1976. And then in the early 80s, there were brown trout stocked in the lower Henry's Fork that was a project done by our local TU chapter. And it it didn't take long for them to really propagate the entire lower Henry's Fork. And where I live now, below... That I live downstream from St. Anthony, and almost all the trout we catch down here are brown trout. Hmm. But in that upper river, it's still rainbows. And, and looking back on my own experience when I was first really getting into fly fishing a lot, uh, there, there, every place I fished almost – we'd catch rainbows. And so I kind of took them for granted. And now there really aren't a lot of rivers that have such beautiful rainbows like the upper river has. So I cherish them a little more than I used to, I think. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And do you fish when you look at, I guess if we stick on that, um, the green Drake, uh, do you fish rainbows and browns and differently? And then also are the, is the hatch spread throughout the whole river? You know, that's a, that's a really great question and, and a little bit difficult to answer because, uh, some of these aquatic insects, especially mayflies only emerge in certain sections of the river. Mm -hmm. For example, we get, uh, pale morning duns and green drakes and the, you know, betas, blue wing olives. Mm -hmm. Uh, some of the others all over the river from top to bottom. But some insects like brown drakes only occur up in the upper Henry's Fork. And then we only get gray drakes that are in a, a significant hatch on the lower river. So <laughs> there is some variation on yeah. that. Uh, but the the two different species of fish – there, you pretty much fish the same way for them. The, when the bugs are coming off, uh, brown trout are pretty actively feed on the surface, and and so they're 
And, and they get big too, as you know, just mm-hmm. about anywhere that there are brown trout, they're going to be the yep. the larger fish. And they they generally are on the lower river. There's some rainbows on the lower river, but most of the big fish that are fish over 20 inches long are browns. Yeah, but they they're, they they feed on on these insects. You know, it's interesting because last summer I was fishing down here below Ashton, and and uh, it gets real tough in the middle of the summer because it's a irrigation water. It has higher flows and gets in a lot of weeds and stuff, and it just it, it doesn't fish very good in the middle of the summer, but. We started fishing late. We'd, we'd get out and start. We wouldn't even start to fish till about 7 o'clock in the evening. And we were fishing hoppers. It was right in the middle of the hopper season. And and we caught some beautiful browns just kind of working the banks with hoppers till it got too dark to fish. So uh, they're, they're just a little, they're definitely a different critter yeah. than the rainbows are. But uh, when the when there's a good hatch on, they're all the same. They're they're all, you know, feed pretty good on the surface. Yeah, that's right. And and, and when you're, is there a green drake? I mean, what would be a, a is there a pattern that's like the go to green drake pattern for on the dry? Well, the most famous patterns were the paradrakes, where it was an extended body. Uh, pattern and to imitate the the dun but like a lot of mayflies that the fish trigger a lot more on emergers so mm. that's uh i think people are a lot more successful fishing emergers on a consistent basis it's it's just that it's uh it's pretty fun to put that great big paradrake out there and watch a big trout come up and eat it yeah Exactly. But so, so I, I still like to fish those. Uh, I used to tie them with elk hair for the body, and that made the body real stiff. And for some reason, uh, you you'd miss a lot of fish with that tie. I don't know whether it, the the fly would turn on its side when you set the hook or what, but you know you'd only hook up half the fish that would eat the fly, but. We started tying a kind of a extended body using a reverse uh, feather for the extension on the body, and and that really improves the, the hooking percentage. What is the uh, what is the reverse uh, feather? So now, yeah, can you describe that a little bit? Well, it's hard to describe. If you take a, you can the best thing to use is a hand. Is a you can use a hand. Uh, saddle feather or even use a uh, a, a mallard uh, you know uh, flank feather a mallard flank that's dyed olive and, and then what you do is go out towards the end of it, towards the tip and then just pull back the fibers back down the quill so it yep it forms a pomard or whatever just a kind of an extension and then you cut the very tip of the 
feather off so what it leaves is just some fibers sticking out that look like the tails oh yeah right right okay so okay and then so the paradrake so if you're there in late june you know and you hit it right maybe you get them on the dries but the mergers are the more common thing and when you fish those emergers are you fishing those you know more extended like through june and then and what and what is a good emerger yeah pattern? Yeah, generally there's a whole bunch of good emergers, just anything that's kind of the size and color and more or less with uh, soft tackle, something you can get to lay down in the film, in the surface film. Okay. And and generally we we still put some floating on the emerger. You just don't want it to be sitting up on the surface of the water. And, uh, the, and then the, the other thing that uh, you need to be aware of, too, during the green drake hatch is that's also a period of real intense pale morning dun activity, too. So there's no guarantee that one fish is going to eat a drake. They get keyed into those PMDs. Sometimes they don't pay much attention to the green drakes. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. So you basically have to have, I mean, when you look at your fly box, uh, do you have like different fly boxes for different times of the year? What is your dry fly and immersion boxes? What do, what do they look that, like? That's kind of how, you know, I've tried to figure out a bunch of different ways to organize fly boxes, but that's kind of where I've gone with my dry flies is I'll have a box that I'm going to use in on the Henry's Fork mostly in june and and that's going to have green drakes pale morning duns it's going to have a lot of caddis different caddis flies because that's our best period for caddis it's not the only time but it's a good a good time that the you know people aren't as keyed into specific caddis hatches but there's one caddis and gary pointed this out and he wrote about it a number of times that the most prolific uh, caddis hatch in the West is is called the spotted sedge. And that's about a size sixteen. It's kind of a kind of has a little bit of a pale tan body, and uh, they come out in really good numbers all over. They're they're even more prolific, I think, on the Madison River than they are the Henry's Fork. But that'll be going on at the same time. So you got – and then later in June and and into early July, then you get a little smaller cousin of the green drake, and we call it a flav. And it's uh, – back in the old days, they – the term – they uh, – genera was ephemerella and they've changed that to drunella which doesn't matter to the fishermen or especially <laughs> the fish but it, it was used to be called the drunella flavelina and then they or no that's what it's called now yeah but the name just kind of stuck just a short for flav because it's uh you know some people tried, uh, eventually tried to get the term small western drake attached to it, but that never did stick. It's, mm -hmm. uh, 
most people just refer to it as a flav, and it's it looks just like the green drake, behaves like it, but it's a about two sizes smaller. It's about a size fourteen, hmm. and and for some reason, that flies pretty prolific on other rivers that don't have green drakes, like the Yellowstone and in the park and and the Madison, they all get good flav hatches. But the, but it's a, a real good hatch on the Henry's Fork, and and it extends from the latter part of June through the middle of July, and sometimes even later into the season. So there you go. So another another fly to add to the uh, the collection, and and then I guess maybe we could just keep that going a little bit as you go into. You know, the, so you're in mid-July. As you get into the summer months, more summer, what what other hatches are coming off? Well, in the summer, things change pretty substantially. And the, the pale morning duns, you know, most people just call them PMDs. They go pretty much all year on, the, on that upper Henry's Fork. At least they start showing up mid-June and... And there's usually some PMDs coming off clear into September on that upper part of the river up there on the Harriman Park. But uh, so you all you got that going on all the time. And then in the middle of the summer, you start losing caddis hatches. There aren't nearly as many caddis coming off, but you get some other new mayflies that show up and they like the flat water more. So when the water gets real slow down in the Harriman Park, you get calabatus, which are really more of a, a lake mayfly. They usually show up on most of our western lakes, but they like the river too. So you get calabatus, and, and then you start getting some uh, little tiny mayflies, little trichos. Mm. And blue-wing olives. So uh, you still have PMDs to consider, but then you have those other small mayflies. And then we really get start getting some pretty serious terrestrial fishing in the middle of the summer, too. Not only hoppers, but uh, beetles and ants, they all are really effective in the mid part of the season. So you get them on into you know as long as it stays warm into september and then and then the uh, another mayfly that starts to become a factor in september is a mahogany dun and it's kind of it's about like a pale morning dun only it's much darker and that that's one of the predominant mayflies in september and then we also start getting a few late summer caddis hatches again. So there's almost always some surface activity going on, on especially on the upper Henry's Fork, where on the lower Henry's Fork, you get down below Mesa Falls. We just don't get much coming off in the middle of the summer. We lose the PMDs, don't do much down here. So you're kind of dealing with a, a drought as far as aquatic insects so it's mostly terrestrial insects and and also fishing nymphs and streamers 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. There's obviously a lot going on that. And that takes us into the kind of towards the fall. And you mentioned trestles. I think Kelly, when Kelly Gallup was on, I think he might've said the ant was like the, his number one, you know, like your, your must have, if you had to pick one, you know, kind of pattern of dry or whatever, yeah, it, it would be that. Well, you know, that's, it's really fun to catch a, a trout, like I was saying with the green drake on a big fly, cause you can use a big tippet and the whole deal. And so everybody wants to catch fish on grasshoppers and, and it is exciting to see a big old fish come up and smash a hopper. But you know, that maybe the most effective is the small terrestrials like little ants and beetles. And we do get a, a real solid, uh, hatch of ants that, that, that I guess you wouldn't call it a hatch. It doesn't come out of the river, but it's a big flying ant, a big cinnamon ant, and we call it a honey ant. And it shows up on most of our rivers out here, and it's not dependable. You can get a big uh, fall of, of these ants one day that just cover the water, and then you won't see them again for three or four days. But there's always a possibility, and you have to be prepared because when – trout get really keyed in on ants it's pretty hard to get them to eat anything else if you don't have the right pattern let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors TurtleBox is the loudest truly portable waterproof bluetooth speaker available perfect for a skiff drift boat or your craft of choice the guys at TurtleBox believe in respecting the peace and beauty while on the water but listening to great tunes before or after can be amazing I remember our last big river trip this summer, and it was cool to break out the Bluetooth speaker as we listened to some classic music and tried to play along with our guitars. Without a Bluetooth speaker, we would have missed a bunch of amazing opportunities and some good laughs. The features I love most on this one are the quality bulletproof frame, easy to push and lighted buttons, and uh, at home you can add another speaker for uh, stereo. To be honest, I've been using uh, this speaker quite a bit around the home, and the dance party with the kids has been great. Find out why TurtleBox is our go-to speaker and why it is great for the river as well. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash TurtleBox to support a great company, this podcast, and some tunes. And uh, and let's keep uh, let's keep this podcast going strong and support a great company. Again, head over to wetflyswing.com slash TurtleBox to get started right now. Okay, back to the show. What's the, I mean, maybe we can talk, you mentioned the, the hoppers and things like that. As far as... Um, you know, setups or techniques, you know, types of fishing, you know, you've got like hopper droppers and different droppers. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, dry flies, it seems like, you know, it's fairly straightforward tying a dry fly, but are there different uh, techniques to use for dry fly fishing? Well, uh, on the, the flat water up in the upper river there, the, you know, we call it the Spring Creek water, the Harriman Park, and it's, very difficult to catch trout on a dry fly with the, the old traditional upstream approach, mm-hmm. you know, where you get below the fish and, and cast upstream. I, I, tr- I really enjoy doing that because it's very difficult and I feel like I'm constantly learning, you know, uh, but trying to get a good drag free drift is very 
difficult with that kind of water. It, it, it looks flat. It looks like it's just as smooth as can be, but you throw a fly and a line out on it, and all of a sudden you realize that you got currents kind of little undulating currents going everywhere. And, yeah. and so the real uh, most effective method to approach these fish in that kind of water is to kind of get upstream of them a little bit, and then you can feed the, the line down. You know, you can try to put a good slack line cast up a couple of feet upstream from the trout and then just start mending line and feeding it down, and, and you can get a drift a lot better using that method so that's that's usually what most people do uh yeah when you get down on the lower part of the river then the river becomes a little more like a more of a traditional river and so then it's just uh you know you just kind of have to be able to i just call it work the clock you know depending on where where you are with relationship to where the fish are, you should be able to make a fish a dry fly upstream, and you should be able to fish across and also down. Uh, this this the straight downstream approach is not it, it it can work, but the problem you run into there is it's really hard to hook a trout. Most people can't wait to set the hook until the fish is has eaten the fly and gone back down so you pull the fly out of his mouth and then if he doesn't eat the fly you got to drag the line right back up over hmm. the fish so yep. you usually want to get a little bit of a angle so you can then swing the fly let the current swing the fly out of the trout's feeding lane and, but you still have the the hook set issue that you have to really focus on and give the fish time to to eat the fly. You know, it's yeah. uh, I remember I remember the first time I went fishing for steelhead, and uh, that's what I'd do. I was using a skating fly on the surface, and I'd see that big head come up, and that was it. You hmm. know, and so I I finally started there's different techniques you can use to kind of force yourself to not pull the fly out of the fish's mouth. But that's, that's a common mistake when you're fishing downstream to a fish. Yeah. How do you, what would be a tip there to avoid pulling the fish out of the, how do you know how long to wait? Well, you just got to watch him and wait till his head's back down. You know, when he, when he comes up, I think, I think a lot of us are, anxious and when we see that nose come up over the fly especially if it's a big fish the big fish generally come up a lot slower and more deliberate and so uh i guess a simple rule would be as far as striking the fish is kind of react the same way the fish react to your fly if he strikes quick then you might want to set the hook quick uh I see that with we we also get a good salmon fly hatch on this river. We never really talked about that too mm-hmm. much, but that comes out in May. Yeah, uh, late May, usually oh May twentieth or so, and extends on past 
Memorial Day weekend, and we get a, a salmon fly hatch all over the river. Uh, they don't come out very well in the in the Harriman Park because it's it isn't the habitat that they like, and also the the Harriman Park doesn't open to fishing till June fifteenth. And by then, the salmon fly hatch is over with anyway. But the rest of the river gets a, a really good salmon fly and golden stone as well. And that's where this this hook set comes into play with that too because one you, you most of the time, not always, but a lot of people are floating the river. And if you're floating and you're fishing a big salmon fly that's a size four, and a trout might just smash the fly. And if you don't react pretty pretty quick, the, the fish will have the fly spit out before you set the hook. But you might have another fish that just comes up and sips that big fly in. So you have to wait and, and a little longer to set the hook. Yeah, exactly. That's a good, that's a good tip. Yeah. You basically, if it comes up quick, you might set the hook quick. If it's a slow rise, then you just give it time. You stay with the same speed as the fish. I like that. That's good. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of different, you know, in stone flies, we didn't really dig in too much. There's, um, you know, I would, I do want to stick on that mayfly because I think it is interesting, you know, as far as um, the different hatches. We've covered most, I mean, through, I guess, into the fall. But as you kind of look at that, you know, as you get into the fall and into the winter, is it just become kind of um, like blue-winged olives and midges and things like that? Or are there other dry flies? Yeah. yeah. No, it does. It, it's, I think, it, pretty much every river, especially our rivers in the West, it, it generally follows about the same uh, as far as dry fly activity. You you get blueing olives, and, and this river gets terrific blueing olive hatches. And they're, uh, you know, I think most people feel like, and well, including the professional entomologists, that the blueing olives that we get are Betis, and they're a multi-brood mayfly. In other words, instead of just one brood a year, taking which takes the nymphs uh, or the adults to one year to mature from the time they were laid as an egg, uh, with blueing olives you get two, so you'll get a emergence in the spring. And usually that's on this river, late March and April. And then you get it again in the fall. Usually it gets started in October. And then when the when the blueing olives start to peter out in November, you, you get really good midge hatches too until the water gets really too cold. And then even all through the winter, there's going to be midges coming off if you if you don't mind breaking some ice out of your guides and you know you want to gear up for some cold weather fishing it can be, you can get some really good dry fly fishing on this river yeah that's right okay cool and well let's um as we think about kind of wrapping this thing up I'd, I'd like to bring it back to that uh, that green drake you know just to keep on that that arc of the show and 
You know, when you think of the green, it's a quick little, like you said, it's late June, June 20th. It's kind of that late period, but you're fishing it, uh, you know, and, and like you said, you're fishing these emergers. When you fish the emerger, I mean, how are you fishing that? Are you fishing the emerger just like you would fish a dry or are you, or are you kind of swinging it? Is it like a wet fly thing? How, how are you doing that? You can, you can do both. Uh, both methods are effective. You can tie a, a soft tackle and there, the, the thing that is intriguing to me is how bright these insects are when they, right after they emerge. Like if they, the, the dun flies off into the weeds and sits around for a couple hours before it molts into a spinner, the, the colors kind of fade. It gets, it just darkens up a little bit, but fresh out of the river, they're, they're really bright. A real, uh, the body is is olive with a se- prominent segmentation, which is almost yellow. And in fact, when I was a kid, the first time I really experienced a good green drake hatch, I was out fishing up there, and and these big bugs started coming out. I didn't realize they were coming out of the river. But there were some of them that I saw on my arm, and I thought it was some kind of wasp or something because <laughs> of the of the coloration of it all. You know, I mean, oh, yeah. I didn't know the difference between a mayfly and a bullfrog back in those days. But anyway, uh, it, it's pretty interesting. And so, with that in mind, the emerger should be tied with pretty bright colors, an olive body, and I'll, I'll usually put some kind of a yellowish ribbing on it, either floss or, or it can be effective now with all these materials that we have available, like a real bright yellow wire to hmm. put a rib mm-hmm. on it. And it doesn't hurt to use a wire or to add a little weight because you want that fly to sit down in the film anyway. And then put some soft tackle on it, usually something that's a little darker. The wings on green drakes are pretty dark. And that's a good – there's all kinds of good patterns. A lot of people like to use a little CDC wing. But you, but I personally, I, I've started using uh, what's called EP fibers mm-hmm. for the wing. That's a – I don't know if you've heard of yeah. – Rico Puglisi is mainly geared up for saltwater, but these EP fibers, which were originated for uh, saltwater flies, you know, the wings and all that on them, but they work, it works really good for the wing material on both dry flies and, and also emergers. So you can put a little wing on it and then you can fish it either get upstream, pick up, you, you usually want to pick out a fish rather than just blind cast and, and just, uh, let the current just swing the fly down above the fish. And that often will bring a, a strike. And the other thing you can do is fish it dead drift dry fly. And where it's right in the film, it's pretty hard to see that fly. So I often use it as a dropper. I'll use a 
like a dry fly extended body drake and then i'll tie a, a merger but not not too far off of the bend of the hook maybe only about a foot you don't want to use a longer one because then it's a lot harder to see where you're at and and uh it helps you to see the strike the only disadvantage is in that kind of current uh when you put a dropper dry fly on then the, then you got the currents working against the yeah. tippet that's between the two flies and so you you really increase the potential for drag but it's still a pretty good method to use just to use the merger dropped off the dry fly merger drop and do you use a different uh different types of dropper uh can you talk about that a little bit or do you just use one one type of uh, kind of dropper setup uh that's the only way i do it is i just tie it off the bend of the upper fly sometimes i you know today uh there are i've started using more of hooks that are just that, that are barbless to start with. And so there isn't a little bump, you know, when you mash the barb down on your hook, then you can tie a, a clinch knot off the bend of the hook and it'll stay there. You won't ever have any issues, but if it's a smooth barbless hook all the way to the point, occasionally the, the dropper knot will slip through the hook. And so, then I'll just tie it off the eye of the of the dry fly. And it seems to work just about as good. Okay. And just remind me again, so you're tying, uh, are you tying the dry fly off? That's your main fly, and then you're doing the, the emerger off of the, the bend of the... Yeah. Yeah. That's how I do it. Yeah, uh -huh. and then the merger off. And then so if you're fishing, let's just take it back to that green drake. You might fish a a big, you know, a big size 10 or whatever green drake dry fly. And then off of that, you might have one of these emergers tied off the bend or off of the hook eye. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. And wasn't there another one, um, I can't remember, the dropper style where you actually have the, um, you know, you have your main fly and then above that kind of hook, maybe that's what you're talking about, where you have the line, the leader going through the eye of that dropper hook where it can slide around. Is that something? Well, I, you know, I do, I do that when I'm fishing little fly, like midges. Uh, what, I, what I've found if I'm fishing some size 22 midges, let's say, and I got a midge pupa and a, uh, and then a midge dry fly. And I've, I really went into this in some detail in the first book I wrote, which is called Spring Creeks. And I, I get a lot of people that ask me about that, actually. But, but when you're using little tiny flies like that and you start tying uh, a bunch of knots, you know, like on your upper fly, you got a knot tied at the eye of the hook to to tie that dry fly on and then you've got to tie the other fly on so there's another knot or i mean the tippet to that upper fly if you're using a dropper so you've got two knots and the knots are with the relative size of the fly are pretty noticeable so what i started doing is tying on a a uh 
dry fly midge and, and all I do is run the tippet through the eye of the hook and then I tie a, a blood knot or a surgeon's knot whichever knot you like to use to tie a tippet on and and then I extend that down and put my midge dropper and tie it to that so the upper fly is just freely can freely slide up and down the tippet but if you hook a fish on the upper fly when you set the hook the knot is big enough to snub up against the eye of the hook and and you still won't have you'll still be able to play and land the fish it's it's kind of interesting to do that because it cuts down on all those knots that are showing up on the dry fly and the other thing it seems to help a little bit is, you know, when you're, I mentioned earlier, when you're fishing two dry flies, two flies right in the surface, you're, you're kind of adding to the potential for drag. And if that upper fly is just uh, freely free to slide up and down the tippet, then it really helps on the drag. Uh, the the problem with that is when you start getting bigger hooks, you reach a point where your uh, knot that you use to attach the lower fly will slide through the eye of the hook if you set the hook. So, you know, like size ten or something, it doesn't work too no. good. No, that makes sense. Okay, I want to I want to take us out of here really quick with the two twenty two little uh, like top two flies, top two tips, top two resources. But um, before we get to that, I just want to check on the Henry's Fork Anglers because it is uh, just quickly, you know, obviously it's a it's a big name out there. I'm curious, can you just take us back uh, to how that started? You know, until I'm not sure who was involved when that got going, and then who's involved today. But can you just give a, little, a quick little rundown on that? Yeah, we. Uh... I was a school teacher. I, I graduated in uh, education, and I taught school here in St. Anthony for six years. I taught junior high school industrial arts, which is shop. And in the summer, summer I worked up in the upper part of the Henry's Fork. Either I used to work for the Forest Service in the summers, and then I spent a couple summers working as a fishing guide out of shop in West Yellowstone and uh, to supplement our teaching, my teaching salary, my wife and I started tying flies commercially and we ended up tying a lot of flies. Uh, it was just, it, it was almost overwhelming. We were having to, to meet the orders that we had. We had to get up before I'd go to school and tie a couple of, hours my wife before the kids got up would tie and I think the the most we tied was one year this was in an entire year along with raising kids and teaching school we tied about 3,000 dozen flies Jeez. and so <laughs> so we were tying a lot of flies and my wife's uh, father my father-in-law he kept talking to us about trying to open up a shop so we could just sell them retail. And he just kind of went ahead and found some property and bought it. And he said it, it was a good deal. And he said, if, uh, 
if we didn't want to move forward with it, it was a good investment for him. So we found some people to put up a building, which with the big help of Shirley's father, and we put up a little log building there and decided to start a shop. And we had to, we had to buy out somebody else's outfitter license. The, on, in Idaho, all the rivers are restricted to only a certain number of outfitters that can guide. And all of it was, this was in 1976. And there already were eight outfitters, which was the total on Henry's Fork. So we were able to buy somebody out, but it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't that expensive because nobody really, I mean, there wasn't that much interest in the Henry's Fork. And then we just went from there and, uh, it was a mom and pop operation until, uh, oh, I guess we started getting somebody to come in and help manage it during the summer months, you know, and in the 90s. And then in 1999, I just, just out of the blue, I had uh, Mark Rockefeller had one of his representatives talked to us it was a guy i knew and had a lot of confidence in and about buying the business from us and with the idea that we'd stay on and keep managing it so that's what we did so we sold the business in 1999 to mark rockefeller and i've i've stayed on board as the general manager and now my younger son chris manages the business we have two two managers and our other managers, Todd Lanning. So it's been a real successful business. We, we, uh, those first eight or 10 years, we didn't know where our next meal was going to come from, but we finally made it work. And so it, it went really well for us. That's cool. That's cool. And is, uh, and Rockefeller, is that, the, that is the kind of the Rockefeller family? Yeah. His father was Nelson Rockefeller and Nelson was, the governor of New York for several terms. And then he was, uh, also vice president under Gerald Ford. But yeah, it's the direct line to John D Rockefeller. Uh, that's Mark's grandfather, John D Rockefeller jr. But Mark's, uh, is, he's just a great guy. He loves to fish. He's a very, very accomplished angler too. That's, that's what I was, you know, I had some concerns when that first came up because we put our our heart and soul into this business and the idea of selling it to some rich guy from New York that uh, wasn't really that appealing. And then we realized that Mark's not at all like like maybe I thought yeah. he might be. So he, yeah. He's just a super guy and he loves to fish and spends as much time out here fishing as he can. Yeah, no, it's so cool. I, I think that's a yeah. It was obviously a smart move, you know. You uh, you've got a business to run, and I think of the other companies. You know, I mean, it's uh, you know, it's a like any business. There's a lot of competition, but you've got a lot of these other places. I'm sure that are owned by you know um, multiple you know corporations or whatever and things like that and groups. And there's a lot of people. So you guys have some power behind what you're doing. How does that change? You know, when you look at your sons, you know, Chris managing the business is that would that the current situation would that be a lot different than if they just own the thing outright or is it kind of uh, it sounds like they manage and run the thing anyways or you guys do still 
Yeah, it's, you know, uh, it was interesting because when, when Mark, we started out with a contract because Mark didn't know me very well. I didn't know him. Mm -hmm. We had a several years, had a contract. It kind of spelled out mostly what we were supposed to do from our end of the contract. And then Mark just asked me if, if I'd just stay on, I said, how, well, how long do you want us to stay involved? And he said, as long as, as long as you possibly can. Hmm. And, and then I said, well, I need a job description. And, uh, so he just said, just run the business. Like I'm not even there. Just run it like you would, if you owned it. There you go. So that's the way we've run it. And, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure that if it did, you wasn't doing well, you know, after a couple of years, maybe he'd lose interest, but he's yeah. really enjoyed it. It's been, it's been a profitable business for him too. And, it's not just like sometimes I hear people say, oh, it's just a tax write-off for somebody like that. And that's not true. Hmm. That's not true at all. That uh, You know, the people like the Rockefellers, they were successful from basically rolling up their sleeves and earning it. And, yep. and Mark's the same way. So, And yeah. that's the way I've always been. So it's been a great, really great relationship. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I, I think the that's a cool story, and I would love to, you know, Mark Rockefeller. It'd be cool if I could get him on. It'd be interesting to hear his story, you know, maybe on the podcast down the line as well. So. It really is. It, it, it's, it's really interesting to hear his side of it because that was a question that I always had is, is why would a guy like you want to get into this kind of a business? But, yeah. you know, when you know him, like, like one thing Mark did – that a lot of people don't know is he went to Princeton University and he walked on oh, wow. as a football, on the football program. And I played a little bit of college football myself, junior college, and so I kind of know how the game works. And I knew that somebody like Rockefeller is probably going to get hit a little harder in practice by some of these in scrimmage and stuff, and especially from other teams. And Mark ended up, setting the record for the most catches at, for a tight end at Princeton. And his quarterback was Jason Garrett, who was the coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, yeah. For a lot of years. Now Jason's uh, offensive coordinator for the New York Giants. But Mark and Jason remain very close friends. Most of his closest friends are his former teammates that he played ball with. So he's a down-to-earth kind of guy. Yeah. 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 And it, and it makes sense. I just think of it from his perspective, obviously you guys have this amazing place. He, he probably came into it originally thinking like this, I don't want to, I don't want this thing to go away. So the best way to do that is to, you know, basically buy a part of it and make sure it stays here. That that's, that's awesome. I love, I love that story. So, Hey, let's, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're going to take it out here pretty quick, Mike, but let's just quickly do the 222. And you've talked about these. We could probably skip the flies. Cause it sounds like if we're focusing on the green Drake, you pretty much, you've talked about that, the, the flies we need. There's nothing, there's not like a specific name of a pattern, right? Other than that paradrake, cause that's the only specific name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what about tips? If you just think two tips, you know, and you've mentioned a lot of good stuff, but if somebody's going out there, it's like June 20th, they're fo- focusing on that green trake. What, what would you tell somebody to help them find a fish? Well, not, number one is use 
the resources that are there. There, there are two very good fly fishing shops on the Henry's Fork, and of course ours is one of them. But we're not the only one. Across the street, we have the Trout Hunter, and they carry a little different patterns than we do. So a lot of a lot of the patterns are the same, but uh, the, it's it's really the kind of river where you really need the latest current information so that'd be the number one tip is use those resources we're we both have guide services but uh and that's of course one good way is if you've got the financial resources to hire a guide but you don't have to do that uh, it's public water the access is very good so go into the fly shops and get some the advice you need they'll tell you what flies you need to use and and give you some ideas of some access places if you've never been to the river and uh so that that's by far the number one perfect the number one uh big tip tip and 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 i and i'd say number two is is just patience because uh you know the fish are gonna feed on their own schedule and a lot of times uh, people will go out there and I'll just give you an example. My own example yeah. is th this last summer uh, I went down to fish the ranch. Uh, I just have a little real quick, a little personal thing that I've do. And that's, I don't fish the ranch till the middle of July. And I don't because of two reasons. I feel like all these other people have spent their vacation time to come out and fish the river and they don't need somebody like me down there competing with them. Yeah. By the middle of July, the ranch isn't as busy and there's still plenty of good fishing around without so many people. And also I, I don't think the fish, I think the fish get worked over enough without me out there. So it's sort of my own personal opening day is about the middle of July. So I went down there and I had I went in the shop and had to do something in there. I, I was a little late getting to the river, and the problem I had is I had an appointment at I had to be to a meeting at like about one. But I went down to the river expecting to see the fish rising. It was ten o'clock in the morning. There there should be something going on, and and I couldn't see a fish rise anywhere. So instead of just walking clear around and being impatient and everything. I just sat on the bank and waited and it took about an hour and I started seeing a couple of fish rise and I went, finally went out and I was able to go out and catch a nice trout. Unfortunately, I had to walk away to get to this meeting, but a lot of people, they just get, they just, they get their first day to the river or whatever. And they just want to go out there and start, fishing and generally if you start just thrashing the water with making a bunch of casts all you do is put the fish down it, it's the kind of river that it's a one-on-one -on -one deal and if you yeah. can't find a fish feeding you're probably not going to be very successful that's it that's it cool and then um yeah maybe just give us a, a resource for you know a book or a magazine you mentioned a few good ones is there one that we focused on that green drake catch well or, yeah the 
the for fishing the Henry's Fork that that book I wrote, that's the one you want. Yeah. Uh, Fly fishing the Henry's Fork. It's it's published by Stackpole. It's still in print. It's uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can buy it from us. You know, so so you definitely need that book. It's got all the maps and everything. It's been updated. Some of the older stuff still very applicable, like uh, the old book, uh, Selective Trout. You can still get that book on. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's still in print. I know there's several editions of it. It's in paperback now, and but you can get it on on uh, mail order and, and get it. And it's really comprehensive information on the the insects, the hatches, and and some of these great flies that work uh, so well. Uh, just for a historical approach to the Henry's Fork, if you can get get one of them the old book that charlie brooks wrote called uh, the henry's fork is a it's okay. a great book perfect it's got mostly history on it perfect that's so, great that's great and uh and then one one other just quick one on the lot do you guys actually you have a lodge on the is that what you're talking about about the uh no the- no we don't and and that's good in the sense that uh we can really be objective so i'm glad you mentioned that because if we did have a lodge, then if people called up and wanted to know where to stay, of course, we'd tell them to stay in our lodge. But people have all different levels of financial uh, resources. And so you can go all the way from the Henry's Fork Lodge, which is a five-star high-end premium lodge that's going to, you know, it's going to hit your pocketbook pretty hard, uh, on down to some some very economical uh motels and cabins so uh yeah perfect no that's where you can get in touch with us and we have on our website at henrysforkanglers.com a list of all the accommodations in the area so we can help with that Okay, perfect. Yeah, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes and everything else we talked about today. I'll, I'll cover it all there. So, so cool, Mike. Well, I think that's um, that's a wrap. I uh, appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge. I've been wanting to get you on the show for quite a while, and definitely now connecting. Uh, you know, after you know, I, me and Kelly, we talk every once in a while, and he's he's an awesome guy, and I love that. I think I asked him. I can't remember how it came up, but he said he said you are the guy. You know, but he said so much, so many wonderful things about you. So it's great to have you on here, and I and I appreciate you with the, the connecting us to Gary Lafontaine as well. So, um, so yeah. Until we meet, until we talk again, I'll, I'll, uh, thanks thanks for your help. Okay, Dave. It's good to talk to you. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash one nine zero. Please share this episode with one other person you think could get a blast of dry fly knowledge and and need it. Uh, Just press pause right now, click over there and share a a link, or you can do it on your app as you're going. Just there's a little share button on all all your apps. So hopefully that you can find that today and and help us get the word out on this great episode. Uh, Before we get out of here, I wanted to share a quick summary of what Mike uh, covered today. And this isn't everything, but just a quick highlight of, of some notes. And... Uh, the one, uh, the one first thing I'm going to start off with is uh, he talked about using the emergers for the green drake hatch, and this is uh, you know an important thing obviously with the green drake, but probably with a lot of other dry fly hatch, especially with mayflies that 
you might not be hitting them hard on the surface, but you can get them on the surface or at least in the on the wet fly. Uh, we're moving down this list. So um, number two, just a quick one, Mike highlighted the PMDs. So pale morning duns are, are very important and they're abundant. I actually had Joe uh, Roder on from Red's Fly Shop. He talked about them as well. There's a link in the show notes to uh, the interview with Joe. Number three, uh, noted uh, Mike noted using ants and beetles, but definitely ants. And, and uh, again, Kelly Gallup noted this in a past episode that this is one of his keys. So remember, always have some ants in your fly box if you don't already. Uh, number four, get upstream and feed the dry line down to the fish with men's. So again, it's not always when there's current um, different currents in the water. Sometimes it's hard to get a, a nice drift. But if you can feed it downstream with mending, you can a lot of times get that nice drift, uh, nice drift to the fish. Number five, react the same as a fish strikes to your fly. So this is a killer tip. This is basically the idea that if a fish comes up and does a hard strike, you should do a hard set. And if it comes up and kind of does a slow strike, then you do a slower set. So so remember that when you're out there and just test that out. And all these things, as I'm noting here, obviously these are things that Mike noted, but you you know, you can test yourself. It's not um, you know, necessarily this is all gospel, but just some tips to think about. Uh, number six, a bright yellow wire can help with weight and color on the wet fly. So again, these flies were not on the surface, even though we might be fishing kind of that dry fly hatch. Um, a little bit of weight, uh, even some wire can help you just get down below the surface. And Mike noted that as a big one. Number seven, use EP fibers for the wing on the wet fly. Uh, there's a ton of stuff you could use for wet fly wings out there. And he thought EP fibers, or he knows we EP fibers are killer for some of the stuff he does. Number eight, use extended body dry fly, uh, with the dry fly dropper, um, off the hook. So basically this is... This is, you know, how he does his setup, at least for the green drake and some of the mayflies, where he has a big dry on the lead fly, and then he just hangs that uh, dropper fly off the bend of the hook. Um, he also noted um, that little trick of putting the um, the leader through the hook, especially when midge fishing, through the hook eye of the midge, and that's another way to do a dropper. And number nine, this is a kill cool one. I love that Mike finished up with this because he noted... Um, you know, your, your local fly shop resource is a big tip. And he also noted the trout hunter, which I didn't realize were right across the street from the guy. So it just shows you the type of person Mike is giving a heads up to uh, some of their competition over there. Um, and just a reminder for all of us that we should support local. If you want to support local, you can support uh, um, that shop or you can support our shop. We've been working with the Gorge Fly Shop. Uh, there's a link in our sidebar. You can click on the, uh, the Gorge Shop. And again, anything you uh, click there and purchased, uh, this podcast gets a commission uh, at no extra charge to you. So the, the Gorge kind of gives it back to us uh, for sending uh, new folks that way. And, and there, um, Travis, he was on a, a past podcast and Really cool guy, uh, good shop. They have some really great stuff there. So definitely check out The Gorge if you can. That's all I have for you. That is a wrap for today. I hope you enjoyed the show and I uh, hope you enjoyed as much as I did talking to Mike. Uh, I want to thank you again for stopping by uh, the show today. I want to uh, hope to uh, maybe catch you online or maybe catch you on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. 